I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter about Headcount, a nonpartisan organization that uses the power of music to register voters and promote participation in democracy, today we're speaking to Andy Bernstein, the executive director of Headcount. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. So tell us, what is Headcount and what is its mission? Headcount is a nonpartisan organization whose mission is to promote civic participation through voter registration and just general participation in democracy. And we do it largely through music and culture. So what we're best known for is registering voters at concerts. We've uh, registered over a million voters in our history at thousands and thousands of concerts. And in a normal year, you'll see our volunteers. If you see live music regularly, you're going to see Headcount whether it's at an event like Lollapalooza or Bonnaroo or on tour with Ariana Grande or Dead & Company, we're all over the place. This year, of course, uh, that all came to a screeching halt, and we still had our best year ever through virtual and digital initiatives, working with a lot of those same artists and partners, as well as Spotify and American Eagle Outfitters and Global Citizen is a big partner of ours. So we kind of took a very, very fast pivot, but of course... You know, young people live in a digital world with good digital tactics. You're going to reach young people. And and we did it in our highest numbers ever. So this election obviously was one of the most important elections in American history. What did you guys do in the lead up to this election? And what were the results of what you were able to accomplish? So there were a few areas we focused on. One was obviously voter registration. And another was getting people information on mail-in and early voting was a lot of education that needed to be done. So on the voter registration front, we registered over 400,000. That's amazing. Yeah, it starts to feel like a really meaningful number. And we did it through a variety of things. Our number one most successful thing we did was work with a YouTube content creator named David Dobrik, who if you're over the age of 22, you may never heard of David Dobrik. If you're (laughs) 14 to 22, you'd be like, uh, of course. Yeah. And David Dobrik has a really, really intense following on YouTube and Instagram and TikTok. And one of his shticks, so to speak, is to give things away. So we worked with David Dobrik to give away five Teslas. And the way to enter to win the Teslas was to check your voter registration status. And we had about half a million people do it, of whom around 130,000 found they weren't registered and then went on to register online. Wow. And so that was our number one contributor. And we did similar contests with a lot of different acts. Uh, Camila Cabello uh, every month did a Zoom call with a fan who won by checking her registration status. We did one with Fish called Check My Status. And if you're a Fish fan, you know that's a Fish lyric. And we had about... 2,000 fans register and nearly 30,000 fans check their status to win a year's supply of Ben & Jerry's ice cream and a signed fish poster. 
we just did a lot of different things online to uh, drive people registering, people checking their status. And through that, people were signing up for absentee ballots. They were checking their polling place. They were seeing what's on their ballot. Once we kind of got them into the digital infrastructure, we drove about 3 million other actions other than registering to vote. And much of that, as I said, was centered around education about voting by mail and voting early. We created a page on our site called Make Your Vote Count. We had over half a million visits to it. And it was basically the core information. And and what I think America learned together is there's a lot of ins and outs to mail-in voting, the ballot cure period, drop-off boxes, things that were not part of the lexicon going into 2020 were a critical, critical component of this election. So there was a massive public education process that was needed on how to really safely vote and make sure your vote counted. And, you know, there was a lot of concerns going to the election about the typical two and a half percent rejection rate on mail-in ballots. And, you know, we had, I believe it was 65 million Americans voted by mail this year. So two and a half percent, you know, that's over two million votes, roughly. Very significant in a close election. Very significant. And what we found this time around, nobody's really written or told this story, is the rejection rates were much lower. Now, if you ask some Republicans, they'd say, well, that's the scandal. Like, why are all these votes going through that didn't go through in the past? And clearly in Georgia, that has some attention. If you ask folks in the voter protection space, they'd say, well, the scandal was how many votes were getting rejected because these votes weren't getting rejected because of fraud or because of malfeasance. They were getting rejected on technical errors. They were getting rejected on signature mismatch where there was no accusation that it was fraudulent. It's just people signed their names differently, things like that. And I think it would really benefit society as a whole if we kind of really got to the bottom of what happened and why the rejection rates were so much lower. Was it because of better policy? Was it because of fairer policy? Or was it because things just got a lot laxer? And if they did get laxer, is there a way to ensure election integrity and security without throwing out you know, millions of legally cast ballots. And my hope, just to, you know, go there for a second, is that we can come together as a country, ha-ha, and really get to the bottom of these things because we want people to believe in elections and their security and integrity. And nobody wins when people don't believe in it. And we shouldn't have wild swings in ballot rejection rates. There should be consistent standards, things that are really across the country, not just at state level. I mean, American elections don't work that way. But things like ballot cures and drop-off boxes, these are the things that help get that rejection rate number lower. I mean, one of the main reasons the ballots get rejected is they arrive late. And this happened all over the place in the primaries. You know, New York City, a quarter of ballots were rejected for the New York primary. Right. This was the Carol and Maloney election. Yeah. They mostly arrived in voters' hands late and then arrived at the... Uh, the registrar's late. So there was a lot of work that got corrected on the fly this year. Huge credit to all of the people who worked to make the voting by mail and early voting systems work. The Voter Home Institute, I think, deserves a lot of credit, as do election workers. But we still, as a country, really need to get to the bottom of what happened in this election, good and bad. And there's obviously a lot of politics around it, and politics gets in the way of truth usually. And what I look at as somebody who works in the election space is, 
what were the dynamics? What were the policies that made two and a half percent go to half percent in Georgia? And I'm not sure if I have those numbers exactly right, but that's sort of what the press reports have said. And for us at Headcount, that's a real victory because we don't want people's ballots rejected. We want people's votes to count. And that, as much as voter registration, was a big initiative for us in 2020. So there's going to be a lot of political science coming out about this election and about how ballots are cast and counted and all of that. What role do you plan to play going forward in this debate? I mean, is there any way that an organization like Headcount can be involved in the advocacy for, you know, making the process more inclusive, making it easier to vote, making the ballots easier to ascertain, you know, all that? That is the question that I've literally spent almost every minute asking myself since the election. What is our role going forward around democracy protection? And on one hand, it would seem fairly obvious, advocate for greater access to the ballots. Where it gets less obvious is one is, how do you really have impact? We're not really an advocacy group. We're a right. participation group. So, you know, we can stand on the rooftops and shout our heads off, but this isn't necessarily what we do best. And I think that in the sort of voter rights space, you have some real partisan lines that mean there's no movement. As long as it's drawn along partisan lines, it just is a matter of who's in office. And you can scream your bloody head off. But if you're in a state with a Republican legislature that doesn't support these measures, nothing's going to move. So then the harder question becomes, well, where can we have impact, especially as a nonpartisan organization? And I really try to think about them from a nonpartisan perspective. We, you know, where do we begin? And the other day, I just kind of threw out notes to myself, a sort of value statement. I wrote, elections should be fair, secure, equally open and accessible to all voters and trustworthy. Yeah. And you'll know the word fraud and suppression are not in the value statement. We stay away from the politically charged words. And try to kind of start from a place that we can all agree on. Who doesn't think that elections should be fair, secure, equally open and accessible to all voters and trustworthy? Well, if they don't agree with that, I don't really want anything to do with them because these are basic right and wrong values. And I sort of foolishly believe that we can, as a country, come together on basic right and wrong values. And that's not always the case. But I don't know where we go from here in terms of advocacy and voter protection, but I do know it is where we need to go because when you see what happened with this election, it is a crisis of confidence. When you have you know, 40% of Americans believing election results are invalid, believing we essentially don't live in a functioning democracy, that's not good. When you have court cases that literally call for taking away the will of the people, when you have court cases that didn't go through, but where the complaint basically says, because of how this election was administered, people who cast their votes properly, who followed the rules, their vote shouldn't count. And this is undeniable. This is what the court cases asked for. So we got to solve this. You know, we can't go another decade or four years or two years where we have an election system where we are disputing the validity of the elections themselves. And I would hope there are bipartisan angles where Democrats and Republicans can come together and pass laws that address both their concerns. But that's, you know, I feel like we are a very small and humble player in that world. 
where we are, the big player is getting musicians and content creators and brands to come together around voter participation. And how we morph that into the next step, that's the question I'm, I'm just spending a lot of time thinking about. Well, there's a lot of power in that. And, you know, I've heard musicians like, you know, not to call him out, but David Crosby say, you know, in this day and age, back in our day, we were all writing songs and talking about how there needed to be changed. Well, what you're doing is you're tapping into a variety of artists, not just, you know, the Dead and Company and bands associated with jam bands and the Grateful Dead. But as you said before, Ariana Grande and, you know, coming up for this Georgia election, you've tapped Two Chains, who's a Georgia native, to raise awareness and voter participation for the Georgia election. So you're doing something that is really tapping into that creative artist community to get young people out, to get people who are following artists out to come vote. So that's powerful. Yeah. And we find that it really works. It's worked for a long time, you know, especially working with young, culturally relevant artists. Some of the artists that we see our biggest traction out of are not the ones that people necessarily immediately associate with Headcount. Panic at the Disco is a really good example right. of a, a band that appeals to young people and very engaged audience. Billy Eilish, certainly, we see a lot of traction with Billy's fans. No surprise there, one of the most popular young artists, a first-time voter this year, a real advocate. But as I mentioned earlier, like Fish is also a band that we registered a ton of voters with. Dave Matthews, certainly The Dead and Bob Weir. It's all over the place. And then having an opportunity to work with Two Chains around the Georgia elections, Lil Yachty, another, The Shade Room, which is a great media brand, reaching a different demographic than Headcount came from. And... That's a really important part of how we grow is recognizing that we really do come from a place of privilege. You know, headcount born by higher ups in the music scene and musicians, it's a place of privilege. And when we look at where we get funding and we look at where we get support, there's a lot of wealthy people connecting with wealthy people and connected people using their connections. And so we have to recognize what we do with that privilege. And one of the things we did this year is we ran a program called United We Vote and United We Vote Community Partnerships, where we brought some of our resources and assets to community organizations to help them run voter registration programs. It started with the Black Lives Matter movement. We started getting emails from all over the country saying, hey, I want to register voters at BLM protests. And this was COVID. We weren't going to set up tables. We weren't going to have things that weren't touchless. So we put out our QR code and shared it with the world and said, if you want to register voters at a BLM event, here's how to do it. Print this out, put it on the back of your sign. And sure enough, all over the country, this was happening. We weren't able to track it or anything like that. We could just see the voter registrations come in and a lot of photographic evidence that they were all over the place. So there was a lot of pieces to the equation. And some of it is the power of a Bob Weir or an Ariana Grande. And some of it is then taking that blessing that we have to have the support from this music industry that is very powerful and ultimately very rich, certainly hurting right now, but ultimately very rich, and take that blessing and pay it forward wherever we can. And, and that's a really important part of, of how Headcount does things and how we want to do things in the future. 
So a lot of our listeners for this podcast know that I'm a Tulane graduate because I talk about New Orleans and Tulane all the time. And I actually got my start in politics on campus at Tulane. And I was part of the Tulane Students Against Apartheid because back, you know, when we were growing up, you and me, Andy, you know, that was a big deal, getting our schools to divest from South Africa. And your board member, Andrew Dreskin, who was one of my, you know, roommates at the time, you know, knew that a lot of kids were apathetic politically. And so I went to Cyril Neville of the Neville Brothers and I said, Hey, Cyril, you know, I know you're into this cause. Can you help us raise awareness? And sure enough, at every Neville Brothers concert, every Cyril Neville and the Uptown All-Star show, he mentioned Tulane Students Against Apartheid. And it really helped us get in front of the Tulane board and all that. And I recognized right away, that's the power of tapping into the creative community. You guys grew out of the Grateful Dead community. Tell me about that and how that has led to, you know, having this broader artist appeal that you have now? Well, the Grateful Dead community is definitely the foundation of Headcount. And Bob Weir is one of our founding board members. And every project he's ever been a part of, he's found a role for Headcount in, including Dead & Company, where we run something called Participation Row, where we travel around the country and invite all the dead family nonprofits to a little village. Our partner there is Reverb, the environmental group, and we have thousands and thousands of dead fans coming through, taking actions such as registering a vote or signing up for election alerts or getting reusable water bottles filled or things like that. And I think what Headcount has done well is we've balanced what we do in the dead world, which is it's the foundation. That's the word for it. A lot of our board are dead adjacent, we'll call them. Our board chair, Pete Shapiro, put on the Fairly Well concerts and is Phil Lesh's primary promoter and owns the Capitol Theater. But we take what we learn in the dead and we apply it elsewhere. So when we got the call three weeks before Ariana Grande's Sweetener Tour that they wanted us out and wanted to do something very custom around Ariana, we had assembled a team of people, some through the dead world, some not, but we had done this before. We had gone on tours before. We had created custom branding using an artist's admat, it's called. We were able to apply a lot of what we learned in the dead world to the pop music space. And I think that continues every day. And I don't think we're alone in that. I think there's many, many things that come out of the Grateful Dead world that get adopted elsewhere. And we are one of them. It's <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. And ultimately, we had no choice because... While Dead & Company attracts a lot of young people, in general, the jam band scene has grown up with us. And I often know, when Headcount started in 2004, I was a young voter. I was 32 years old. I was hanging out with people who were a few years younger than I am, who were in the prime young voter demographic. And we were going to the same shows and whatnot. Well, 15 years later, the fan bases of a lot of these bands are 15 years older. Dave Matthews being a really good example where we used to register hundreds and hundreds of voters at Dave Matthews band shows. And now it's more about the activism piece because these fans have seen us every year for 15 years. Yeah, they're already registered. Yeah, exactly. So we had no choice but to move into spaces that I often say I am thoroughly unqualified to run a pop music organization. I, this is not music I know. This is not a culture I know. And yet I have 16 years of experience of running a music-based voter registration organization. So it's a lot of listening and a lot of recognizing what you don't know and being able to 
find ways to be relevant. And it's hard. You know, we're still a lot more relevant in the dead world than anywhere else. You know, the goal is to, over time, seed the organization with young people who are from other music communities. I did exit interviews with our interns yesterday, and I asked every single one who their favorite artist is. Every single one of them answered Harry Styles. Yeah, yeah. And we work with Harry Styles and we've registered voters on his tour and we would have been out on the road with him this summer had it not been for the pandemic. It's eye-opening. Like, I'm joking with these kids. One of our interns' name was Haley and I made her listen to the fish song, Haley's Comet, just (laughs) to remind her I'm old enough to be her dad. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people don't realize that for the entire Grateful Dead career, you know, until Jerry died, the Dead were basically a nonpartisan band. They never took political positions. They strictly stayed away from politics. And maybe that made them, you know, more appealing to more people. Maybe that made them more approachable. Maybe that allowed them to, you know, lead to nonprofits like this, where you really can make a difference and cross the aisle and just do good things. Yeah, and I think the turning point was Bobby having kids. We got started working with Bobby in 2004 when Bobby's kids were young children. And I know Bobby's motivation was that he wanted to leave a future for his kids than the current generation had. You know, he said that many times and now his kids are older and one is a Instagram influencer who might have more Instagram followers than Bobby himself. Wow. You know, but Bobby has truly been incredible. He's just been a force for headcount and a force of good. And he's a kind man and he's a humble man. You know, for somebody who has literally millions of people who have based their whole identity around him, Bob is about as egoless as one can get. But Jerry famously, you know, was very apolitical. You know, I think the Jerry Garcia Grateful Dead was always going to be that. But the modern day Grateful Dead world is quite political and quite important politically. You know, they've done many different fundraisers, whether it's for Pelosi or Obama. And there's no doubt that the Grateful Dead have a certain political importance in Washington. Certainly in the Obama administration, there were a lot of deadheads. And in Congress. Yeah, in Congress. And it's both sides of the aisle. One of our board members is Diane Blagman. And Diane Blackman is one of the top lobbyists for the music industry. She was the Grammys lobbyist. She lobbied for NITO, which is the National Independent Talent Organization, getting behind the Save Our Stages Act that is going to pass today. And I was sort of sent to Diane when Headcount started. And I go to Diane's office and she shows me her live wall and dead wall. And her live wall is photos of her with a lot of very famous people and politicians. And her dead wall, she said, to be on the dead wall, you either have to be in the Grateful Dead or your career is dead or you are dead yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So she points to the photos of herself with Jerry, Bobby, and Bill Clinton. (laughs) And, uh, And we have a good laugh. And Diane starts to tell me about the network of deadheads who are in D.C., and how one of the FCC commissioners is a deadhead, and this person in the White House, and this person on the Hill. She actually started telling me about a gentleman named Bruce Keelock, who has dreadlocks down to his ankles, and is one of the top congressional fundraisers. 
Mm-hmm. And then I said, does he do fundraising for a nonprofit organization? This is when Headcount was just starting out. We didn't have a nickel in the bank. And she's like, well, let's find out. And she hits the phone and she calls Bruce Keylock. And Bruce instantly got Headcount. And we started working together. And we ended up putting on a fundraiser at somebody's house that Bobby came and played. And it was in Rolling Stone. And on the way to the fundraiser, separate from Headcount, Bobby stopped in at the Obama campaign headquarters this is march 2008 so this is right when obama is starting to look like he might win and that connection got made separate from headcount i mean we obviously don't work with the obama campaign at all but my point is there is a network of deadheads who are in important political places in dc and as headcount, we don't really get involved in that too much because we really do stay away from partisan politics a congressperson is a deadhead there's not a lot I can do with a member of Congress that's going to help us achieve what we're trying to achieve. But it is interesting to note that there is this network and we kind of have our insider, Diane Blagman, who's just a wonderful person who's very well known in, in DC circles and on the Hill. To your question about kind of the role the debt has played, we've just taken all of these building blocks over time and turned it into a lasting organization. And now that we have a partnership with Global Citizen, and we've worked with brands like Spotify and Grubhub and Ben and & Jerry's for many years. We've just built out those tentacles. Obviously, Ben & Jerry's is the natural, but you know, Grubhub, Spotify, things like that. Grinder was a partner this year. We have an initiative called Vote with Pride. We also have an initiative called the Cannabis Voter Project. You know, We want more people to know about that. That's at cannabisvoter.info. And that has the voting records of every member of Congress on cannabis, uh, which is changing rapidly. We see cannabis as an issue that can really bring out voters. And I should mention our website, headcount.org, where we have all that information about early voting, about how you can volunteer or get involved with thousands of volunteers around the country of every age. But especially, uh, we have a lot of older volunteers who are deadheads. And then we have a lot of younger volunteers who are like, what's with all the old deadheads? So uh, it runs the gambit. Andy, I really appreciate your time today. This is a great organization you lead and one that CSIS will certainly be following. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Well, I appreciate it as well, Andrew. It's great to talk about these topics. It's great to uh, meet yet another Tulane grad as Tulane grads have actually are part of that network. And for those of your listeners who don't know, Tulane grads are secretly running something. I don't know if we can say they're running the world, but they're all still working together. They're all in cahoots. (laughs) That's true. Take care, man. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 